This is Religion Matters, the podcast that discusses issues surrounding religion in our world and how it matters to us. And this episode in particular is quite interesting. We're, we're proposing a new way of doing our podcast, one way that not only includes some of our previous ways of doing it, but also utilizes new opportunities. And these opportunities come from students of ours. So we're all teachers and we're always able to receive such great projects from our students. And the unfortunate reality is many of these projects go unnoticed to the outside world. We They, they, they tend to stick on our computers and stay on our computers and don't get the adequate attention. And so we've decided that we would like to include some of these projects on our podcast. And the first project that we have is done by Amaya Wadsworth, a student of mine at Chapman University. She's a senior in the Religious Studies Department at Chapman University, and I'm delighted to showcase her research with you all. You're listening to Religion Matters. Hello, my name is Emma Wandsworth, and you are listening to a one-off, one-time-only podcast episode. This is for a project in my class, The Study of Religion, and I'm going to be presenting a project titled Under the Guise of Liberation, the Strategic Victimization of Muslim Women. So the aim of today's podcast is to illustrate the Orientalist Islamophobic rhetoric spread of information in the United States, specifically regarding women's rights in Islam, and argue that this rhetoric has been used to justify American imperialism and bigotry. I will be approaching it from the lens of evolution of this issue. I'll give a history of it, how it presents today, how I've seen this rhetoric present through my lifetime, explore how this Western feminist narrative has harmed Muslim women, and how this harm has led to the Islamic feminist movement. Um, to give a little bit of a positionality statement, I am a senior at Chapman University. I am a religious studies and English literature double major, which is actually where I chose to do a podcast for this project. I write a lot of papers and we were kind of given an option to go in whatever direction we wanted. And I wanted to challenge myself. I also feel like a podcast presents this information to maybe a less academic audience. A lot of the stuff I'm saying is stuff discussed a lot in academia and the post-colonial world and in the religious studies world. However, it's not something that most people may have discussed very often. Um, and I thought that this would be an interesting way to bring it into the casual or colloquial discourse. Um, it's very important to note that I am not a Muslim woman, and I don't think this podcast is necessarily going to be directed at Muslim women, because I'm not going to say anything that they don't know. <laughs> I think that this podcast will be informative for people who are not informed on this issue, specifically other white Americans like myself. Um, and if you are a Muslim woman and you're listening to this, please bear with me while I explain some stuff that you have been probably familiar with for your entire life, especially if you live here in America and hear this stuff all around you. Um, with that going forward, I want to encourage you to listen to everything I say, but more importantly, 
if you're interested in this topic, please defer to Muslim women who have talked about this, post-colonial scholars who have talked about this. Um, I'm going to be using some clips from Muslim women because I don't want to detract from their voice in this podcast. But for further research, that is where I encourage you to go. Think of this as an introduction to the concept, a one-on-one class, rather than a deep dive. So for some context, I'm going to be using the term SWANA, which refers to Southwest Asia, North Africa. When I started this project, I was actually using the term Middle East, and I recently learned that this is not as much of a preferred term anymore, uh, very understandably, because it actually centers the West. Um, it is not the Middle East of Asia. Uh, the Middle East that we know of, we've determined that because that's our its proximity to the West. And so in an attempt to go with a less westernized, less orientalist term, I'm going to be using SWANA, which refers to Southwest Asia and North Africa, just to repeat that for you. Um, I'm going to go over some foundational concepts that we're going to be discussing today, the first being Orientalism. Orientalism is a term coined by Palestinian scholar Edward Said. He's an amazing author, he's a post-colonial theorist, and I'm sure if you're all involved in the post-colonial theorist world, you have heard his name many times, you have read his work many times, he is a revolutionary, um, and he coined this term discussing the way that the West views Swana. He defines it in his book as a style of thought based upon an ontological and epistemological distinction made between the Orient and most of the time the Occident. And if you are my age and you are not as commonly uh, used to the terms Orient and Occident, maybe you've heard your grandparents say them, hopefully you haven't heard our peers use these terms as they are quite outdated. Um, the Orient refers generally to Asia, but it is a vague and purposefully vague concept. It's hegemonic in that way. It expands and contracts to mean whatever it needs to mean for us from a Western perspective. And the Occident is sort of what we know today as the West. Um, Orientalism in general, it exoticizes and it fetishizes this area, and it makes the area mystical and unreal to us. It paints Swana as a white fantasy rather than the actual living, breathing place that it is. Um, I would like to say specifically, I'm going to be talking about Islamic feminism regarding Swana, um, though I know that there is a huge percentage of Muslim women living outside of that region. And I'm also going to be talking specifically about the US. I will refer to the West generally in these concepts, and there will be some data that I use that is going to reference other countries in the West. Um, and some history that references other countries in the West. But the perspective of Orientalism that I'm approaching this from is a American perspective that that's what I've witnessed and just to constrict the topic a little bit more. But it is sort of necessary to reference these other countries, especially Europe, um, in the sense that they have set the history for a lot of this and it provides important context. So Orientalism in general was discussing, the book Orientalism, I mean, was discussing this uh, phenomenon of Orientalism in the West. And I also found an article that talks specifically about Orientalism in relation to gender by Mamadoul Hassan. And I'm going to read a quote from his piece today that will help illuminate this specific perspective. Orientalist representations of women, on the other hand, have all along been intended to convey a particular impression of them as passive, incapable of raising their voice and always waiting for Westerners to advance their causes. And this might be something you recognize. I challenge you to think back 
throughout your life to the exposure that you had to women from Swana, um, specifically Muslim women, and what you were taught about them. Were you taught that they were passive? Were you taught that they were oppressed and sexually repressed? Um, and a lot of literature and media from throughout history portrays Muslim women as these sexual fetishized creatures that are somehow also very repressed and have no agency and are passive. And that's because they're created as an exoticized fantasy for the white man. So I want to talk a little bit about how Orientalism presents today, starting from my own childhood um, with the movie Aladdin. Now I know that many people love Aladdin, and it would probably be a nostalgic topic for many listeners. Um, it is for me too. I love that movie so much growing up, but I think it's a fantastic example of the way that we're getting this messaging and this rhetoric um, through our media at a very, very young age. Um, in Aladdin, the villains, Jafar, for example, is more stereotypically um, looking like he is from Swana. He has darker skin than some of the other characters. He has a hooked nose, whereas Aladdin and Jasmine have far more um, westernized and light skin features. Uh, Jasmine is also hypersexualized. There is a general mixing of cultures, unlike some other Disney movies where it takes place in one specific country. Uh, Aladdin takes place in a fictional land that has architecture that seems like it's from one place in Asia and costumes that seem from there another place in Asia and names and language that comes from a different language used in Asia not related with the other things. Um, and it's because we've kind of meshed all this together in a fantasy rather than approach Swana as a real life place. Jasmine's conflict in particular really reflects this gendered orientalist perspective where she is being kind of pushed into arranged or forced marriages. Um, she's hidden in the castle. She's repressed in that way um, and kind of being forced around by the men in her life. And she has very little agency until she meets Aladdin, of course. Now, I know that these things are kind of also present in some other Disney princesses, such as the over-sexualization um, and the depiction of a woman with lack of agency. But I do think that with the context, this kind of displays how this narrative has shaped uh, our perspectives throughout our life. I'm going to play you a clip from Aladdin. This is from the original movie. Um, this actually is a lyric that was changed in the DVD release. So this may be um, not the lyric that you have in your home DVD of Aladdin, but this is in the opening song. Uh, and it's just a great depiction of the way that we depict Swana in our media. I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roam. Where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. It was changed, but it wasn't changed to something very different, and I think that that's a great depiction. So you might think, okay, that was our media that we maybe had as children or adolescents. How are we impacted by this rhetoric today? So I want to play you two clips from a news broadcast in 2016. This was after a terrorist attack in France, and this is on Fox News. It is an interview with Newt Gingrich, um, and these are two clips that I think really showcase the way that we portray Swana and the way that we portray Islam in American media. Western civilization is in a war. We should, frankly, test every person from here who's, who is of a Muslim background, and if they believe in Sharia, they should be deported. Sharia is incompatible with Western civilization. 
All right, so here we see the association of all of Islam with Islamic extremism as demonstrated in the terrorist attack. Um, you see him present this idea of a clash of cultures that automatically sets us up as opposing rather than how we may want to ally or aid each other. And I think most importantly, we see his depiction of what Sharia is, which is this term that really gets thrown around often in American news media. Um, Sharia is just holy law in Islam. To give you a good equivalent example, this would be like someone saying, we need to round up everyone who follows the Ten Commandments and deport them. That is essentially what he's saying uh, if we were to look at maybe somewhat of an equivalent in Christian culture, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And this is something that we have seen enter into our lives, this rhetoric. I'm going to play you another clip from this broadcast. So my question is, if you have a clash of cultures and people believe they can tell women how to dress, whether they can work or drive or go to school and and they treat women like second class citizens and you can't build a temple and you can't build a Christian church. And so they're against women and, and gays get murdered for being gay. So there's attacks against women, gays, Jews and Christians. How do we ascertain? That got cut off there. There was no point where I <laughs> accurately cut it off right after he said the word Christians. But I think that excellently depicts the way that we have set ourselves up as oppositional to this culture. If we can paint Swana as a place that is oppressive towards women and oppressive towards gay people, and they're treated as second-class citizens, and they're oppressive towards some religious minorities, it paints us, if we are speaking of them that way and acting like it's so horrible, it implies that we are not that way, that women are not second-class citizens in the U.S., that gay people are not targeted for crimes in the U.S., um, that religious minorities don't suffer in the U.S., which is just not true. I mean, there, as I'm sure you know, that there are high statistics of gendered violence, of violence based on uh, queer identities, of violence based on anti-Semitism or Islamophobia um, in the U.S., and we have not solved these problems here but when we can paint these problems as occurring in another place, not only does it excuse um, our intervention in that place, but it also removes culpability from us. If we're saying that it's so awful over there, then it must not be so bad over here. And this is something I've heard a lot as a feminist in the United States. Um, a lot of the times, luckily a little bit less recently, but I remember being in high school and having conversations with guys my age and telling them that I was a feminist and them saying, well, women aren't oppressed here. They, women aren't oppressed anymore. And I would say, really? Nowhere? And they would say, oh, well, yeah, like you're not oppressed here. Like in Saudi Arabia, women can't drive. And this is what this narrative does. When we amplify the issues of patriarchy in other countries, especially other non-white countries, we are able to act like because their issues may be worse in some arenas of their life, or whether or not it is worse, to be honest, sometimes we exaggerate it and make it seem like it's worse, that it can't be that bad here where we are. And in this way, we paint the other country in a bad light, and we paint our country in a good light, and we remove nuance from the situation. So you may think, how has this affected us? Is this rhetoric really popular? Um, and you may think that was a Fox News broadcast, you know, that leans more right. I really want to drive it in that this is not something that you only see occurring on the right. This is something that is also on the left. Now, I picked out that broadcast because it was a more extreme example. They were more very clear with their rhetoric, let's say. Um, and it's also easier to find those broadcasts sometimes because the titles kind of let on a little bit truly to what they're talking about. But this 
narrative is present all throughout our media, whether it is right-leaning or left-leaning, and I want to make sure to put that out there. And so you may think, oh, well, only maybe um, people on the conservative side of things are really affected by this, or most Americans don't think this way. We're able to critically think through it. So I do want to present you with some statistics and some personal experiences that may say otherwise. This first one is a statistic from 2011 from the Association of Religious Data Archives. Um, it is speaking generally about Western nations, the United States, Britain, Germany, Russia, Spain, and France in particular. Um, I couldn't find a statistic where they asked this question to just a uh, United States audience, and I couldn't find any part where they um, narrowed down which of these answers came just from the United States, but I still think it's really relevant. This is a question they ask responders in these Western nations um, if they associate Muslim people with, quote, being respectful towards women. And a resounding 67.8% said no, they did not make this association. Um, the remaining percentage, some people said yes, they made the association, and some people said that they didn't know or they refused to answer. So truly, this shows the majority of people have been affected greatly by this narrative. This is from 2011. I would hope that things have changed since then, but it really is not that long ago. And I would also like to share with you some personal experiences of Muslim women. Uh, the first thing I'm going to play for you is a TED Talk by Dahlia Mogahed, um, talking about how she's perceived as a Muslim woman. And then the second two clips I'll play after that are by Shahat Batal, um, who is a influencer, a Muslim influencer, and it's in an interview with Refinery29. Um, the first clip, she just talks about her anxieties of being known as Muslim to her audience. In the second clip, she talks about an experience she had at an Earth Cafe. So here's the first clip from the TED Talk. When I was 17, I decided to come out. No, not as a gay person like some of my friends, but as a Muslim, and decided to start wearing the hijab, my head covering. My feminist friends were aghast. Why are you oppressing yourself? The funny thing was, it was actually at that time a feminist declaration of independence. From the pressure I felt as a 17-year-old to conform to a perfect and unattainable standard of beauty. I didn't just passively accept the faith of my parents. I wrestled with the Quran. I read and reflected and questioned and doubted and ultimately believed. I think that was a good clip to show because it talks about how people have reacted to her decision to wear a hijab. And it also talks about how it was a very personal choice for her when it is very often painted as something that women are forced to do. Now, this is a theme that is gonna be consistent throughout the rest of the presentation, uh, titled The Discourse on the Veil, um, which is a title by Leila Ahmed. Um, and I think that it is a kind of manifestation of the way we see Muslim women as a whole, the way we treat wearing a hijab, because it is a visible part of Muslim womanhood. All right, here's the next clip. I feel like people just like refuse to believe that I'm a normal girl. I started wearing the hijab almost two years ago. I was going through a lot. I was really confused at the time and I really turned to my religion. Before I started wearing the hijab, I was actually a natural hair blogger. Even prior to wearing the hijab, I was always a bit hesitant because I knew a lot of my followers weren't Muslim. And now I'm like, it's like a part of me. So why would I hide that? 
sitting at Earth Cafe uh-huh. with a couple of my friends, and we were, it was like we were caged animals. It was the wildest thing ever. Like, oh, we were just sitting, scary. you know, enjoying my avocado toast, like always, and like this girl is staring at me from one side and then I see this other girl staring I see firefighters in uniform just completely staring at us and it's important to note that that story she's telling is about an experience she had in LA so again if you're inclined to think that maybe this is only the treatment of Muslim women in America um in the south or this is really the only the view of conservative people where if you really believe that way. Think about how this is the experience of someone in LA in one of the most progressive areas of the country, arguably. So I want to talk about why this rhetoric matters and why we do it. How does this function in the US and what does it serve? Um, and I think that a really good answer to that comes by observing the United States' military presence in Swana. Um, according to the Pentagon, in 2011, the United States had around 100,000 troops um, in Afghanistan, and in total, more than 800,000 U.S. soldiers were in the war in Afghanistan. Um, also, according to the Conflict Management and Peace Science Journal, um, based off U.S. military data, they said that the United States had over 173,000 troops deployed in 159 countries as of 2020. Um, that is a ton. This is evidence of United States imperialism. And this is what the United States wants to justify. These numbers are huge. They're kind of crazy. Um, and they may make American think, God, this is a lot of uh, money and resources that my tax dollars are going into. Um, this is a lot. Do I want to be patriotic, patriotic for this country that is uh, very clearly engaging in violence in other countries all over the world? Um, and as the United States, right, you would want to make that seem a lot softer, seem like it's for a really important, really good cause. Um, and one of the things that you can do to do that is painted as a feminist act, especially with the rise of feminism. If we say that what we're doing is really good for the women in these countries, um, then again, just like I was talking about earlier, it provides justification and it simultaneously removes culpability from the United States. Um, How this is specifically tied to Islam too, and not just um, our perception of quote-unquote the Orient and the way that they treat women is that Islam is a fundamental part of culture and much of Swana and also it's something that isn't really going away and if we were to paint this as an issue maybe with a specific politician um, or a specific regime it's something that we wouldn't be able to keep up with for decades right that person wouldn't be there for that long necessarily or if we got rid of them then we wouldn't have as much to do we won't be able to continue to intervene so if we view islam as an oppressive religion it creates positive justification for u.s imperialism and when misogynistic sentiments can be tied to islam rather than specific politicians or specific countries the united states can continue to interfere with the middle east citing an extremely prevalent cultural component the media can push this idea that islam is inherently violent towards women this will uphold this connection that we're talking about between this oriental world and violence and simultaneously it'll paint the u.s intervention as something that is a feminist act despite our own issues with gender equality in the united states here's when i want to talk about lila ahmed's article the discourse of the veil she talks about the history of when this started to become a topic in the west um by this i mean uh, the issue of 
uh, are Muslim women oppressed? Um, and when and why it kind of emerged as a topic. These are two quotes from her. However, even though Islam's peculiar practices with respect to women and its oppression of women formed some element of the European narrative of Islam from early on, the issue of women only emerged as the centerpiece of the Western narrative of Islam in the 19th century, and in particular the later 19th century as Europeans established themselves as colonial powers in Muslim countries. And you can see that this intersection is important because it shows that this rhetoric was upped right when it needed to be. Second quote is, the Victorian colonial paternalistic establishment appropriated the language of feminism in the service of its assault on the religions and cultures of other men, and in particular on Islam, in order to give an aura of moral justification to that assault at the very same time as it combated feminism within its own society. And I think this is a great discussion because it's talking about um, Victorian colonial paternalistic establishment, but it seems to be still very relevant today in the U.S. Um, that if you appropriate this language of feminism, it gives you the justification, and it also combats feminism with your own, your own society. Not only does it make it look like you are feminist heroes in your country, but it also gives you a way to diminish the voices of women in your own country and gender diverse people in your own country who say, hey, we're oppressed here. And you can say, no, you're not, because you're not having the experience that these women over there are having. This has been a very Western feminist lens. This is something that you may refer to as secular feminism, sometimes Western feminism, sometimes white feminism. Uh, and these terms have more recently been used to describe feminism from women specifically, um, or largely from women. Uh, but I do think over time it kind of started as an issue that men were creating, but Western feminism, of course, has responded to it and picked up these claims because this is what we're taught over here in the U.S. Um, that, and we've, I think, really recently seen feminism as something that um, is specifically focused on sexual liberation. I think this is slowly changing, and there's a lot of issues with that and with choice feminism in general that I, we could make a whole other podcast about. But, I, for example, I mean, right, if my grandmother wasn't allowed to wear dresses that went above her ankles, then for me, it feels empowering or like counteracting patriarchal society to wear a miniskirt because it's basically saying, I am resisting this thing that you've imposed on us for thousands of years. Um, and, you know, that can have issues too. Unfortunately, whatever women do, uh, there seems to be a problem with, um, and it seems to be fetishized and all these things. But Generally, that has kind of created a, a growth in uh, sexual empowerment and sexual liberation as a very popular Western feminist ideology, um, which really easily, unfortunately, ties in with believing that women in Islam are re they're repressed in their sexual identity and they're forced to wear covering garments, um, which has kind of led to a pushback, of course, from the feminists among these Muslim women who know that a lot of the times that's not the case. Now, I'm not saying that that's never the case. Some women are forced into these things. I do have a friend personally in Saudi Arabia um, who wears a full covering because that's what is expected of her. Um, and she needs to do that to be safe and to be following the law. But she personally would not do that if that was not where she lived. So in some cases, yes, it is not a choice or it is a very pressured or coerced choice. But generally, if we paint that to be all cases, that becomes very problematic. So I just want to put that out there. I'm not negating that oppression does exist um, in Swana and regarding Islam. But I'm just talking specifically about the way we painted in the West as being a non-nuanced issue. 
So of course, the emergence of Islamic feminism has come as a response to this Western feminism. I want to read you a quote from Miriam Cook, who talks about the emergence and growth of Islamic feminism, and I think she explains it really well. A few Arab women, public intellectuals, are constructing a new identity so as to occupy a rhetorical position that will facilitate their intervention in the production of knowledge. They are situating themselves as contingently as Islamic feminists, thus bringing together two essentialized categories that would seem to be mutually exclusive. Yet the intent is quite the contrary. They are concerned with showing that Islam is not necessarily more traditional or more authentic than any other identification, and that feminist does not mean modern and therefore Western and imitative which I think is just a great way to accompany all of this. Feminist does not need to mean modern. It does not mean to need to mean secular. And that is what we have been taught by Western rhetoric. So now I want to play you another clip from a Muslim woman. This is a TED Talk. Um, Malika Hamidi is the speaker. It's from 2014. And she comes in, what she's starting to discuss as the clip starts is she's discussing Islamic feminism for reference. Uh, this was a little bit of a longer clip, but I do ask that you bear with me because I think it, it's a great job. And then I'm going to talk about the comments under this video afterwards. But when they are coming and they want to feel, to fight with uh, feminist groups, unfortunately, they are facing a neocolonial and the relationship, a, a relationship of domination with some feminists, with some secular feminists, and they are not accepted, unfortunately. So this is why uh, they are claiming for the decolonization, and they are speaking about decolonization of the feminist practice. They want to be treated as equal when they came and they want to struggle for equality with other feminist organizations, they want to be treated as equal, as women, not as a headscarf. They want to be accepted as a feminist. And this is one of the main challenge because there are uh, always have the, the feeling that they are um, considered as uh, a victim you know, this neo-colonial approach. So this is why, as, as, as I was saying, is that they want to be, they want the decolonization of the feminist practice, but they also want, as the, at the academic level, they want the decolonization of the academic, at the academic field to give to Islamic feminist uh, uh, movement rooms for debate. And they want that movement to be recognized at the academic level as well. So, uh, concludingly, what I would say is that we are just uh, at the beginning of a movement today. A lot of women, a lot of Muslim women, now are accepting the label. Uh, when I, I come, I, I'm speaking uh, with regard to my researchers on the field. Maybe four years ago, most of Muslim women in the act activist uh, Muslims organization they were speaking about liberation, they were speaking about emancipation, but they would not accept the term and the label Muslim feminist. And now what we can see from the grassroots level, when I went and I interviewed Muslim activists, they say, yes, now we have understood the label, we have understood the content of that struggle while using feminist concepts within an Islamic paradigm. And now, this is right. We have understood it. So we can share that label and we can be labeled as Muslim feminists. So they are fighting every day to try and to construct that common inclusive feminist identity, not to be marginalized in the European societies because they are Western, 
they totally feel Western, they are considered as, they want to be considered as Muslim Western feminists. So this is one challenge. And the second challenge, uh, this is very important. This is the idea of bridging the secular and the religious voices when speaking about liberation. Unfortunately, again, Islam has a very, very bad uh, connotation in. So I want to stop it there because I think she, that is kind of a perfect um, segue into reviewing the comments on this video. This video uh, was posted, I believe, six years ago. Some of these comments are from six years ago. Some of them are from the last year. And these are the top comments, the ones I'm about to read you. These are not ones that I had to hunt for at all. I'm going to read you some. One says, this is like saying Nazism made me love Jews. You can't make this shit up. Second says, that must be the definition of oxymoron. Another says, Islamic feminism, seriously? Another says, quote, a certain interpretation of Islam, unquote. So it's still Islam then, question mark. Another says, wow, looking forward to speciesist veganism right now. Another, the term Islamic feminist makes me laugh. Another, Ted, come on. Go and live in Saudi Arabia and see how empowered you feel. Then says, Islam and women's rights sounds like an oxymoron. Guys, we are living in La La Land now, WTF, question mark. This is a joke, right? Seven minutes and said nothing. Islam and feminism, both movements don't mix. Muslim and feminist are diametrically opposed. It's not, quote, interpretation, okay, question mark. In that comment section, I found three, a total of three positive comments or comments that defend the speaker. And this is kind of what I want to leave you with. I know that it's kind of a harsh note to be left on, but this is what we are fighting against rhetorically. Uh, if you consider yourself an ally, someone who's interested in religious studies, uh, and someone who wants to protect the progression um, of religions to be more inclusive and to uh, our own society to be more inclusive, especially in the U.S., to be more feminist, to be less bigoted, to be less Islamophobic, this is what we're fighting rhetorically. We need to be aware of our own language. We need to be aware of what we consume, what we have consumed, what we let our children consume. And I highly encourage you all to apply this to Western politics, all of it, I mean, like the idea of uh, the West is creating this idea of oppression in Muslim women because it serves them how. And we can approach that in so many different ways of our life. The West paints the picture as this, or the US paints this picture because it serves them how. And think critically about that because it really does affect every part of our media and our rhetoric. And I'm not even saying that all the time is intentional. I think a lot of the time it's not, um, but that is the rhetorical power. Once you create a narrative, that is what society will run with unless it is extremely and radically challenged, which I think is the best following step to this type of approach. Um, as I leave you, I want to say I think it's really important if you're interested in this at all, or maybe even if you're not interested in this, to seek out more perspectives of Muslim women. There are academics, there are authors, there are YouTubers and influencers. There are so many people that
that have been personally affected by this, Muslim women in Swana and Muslim women living in America and experiencing the discrimination here in America, uh, hearing their perspectives, hearing how this has affected them. And I also would say, do not expect free labor from your Muslim friends. Um, that might sound like an odd thing because you're saying, oh, what labor am I expecting of them? But think of how exhausting it is to be fielded with this othering and this ostracization every day. Um, and a lot of times people wanting to learn about it and asking questions can sometimes just pile onto that. Um, so I do ask that if you want to continue to seek out more perspectives, um, you look for people who have purposefully already made content about this to be consumed that is meant to be educational rather than expecting your friends to do that emotional labor for you. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it if you made it all the way through um, and if this topic was at all interesting to you. Um, and I hope that you go forward thinking more critically about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amea, for your for your project. It was uh, very enlightening. And and what you do is you you kind of you touched on so many aspects of the different normative or what we've considered to be normative narratives about certain issues, whether it's aspects of feminism, aspects of Islam, and how you've combined both of those topics and how the West has tried to create this narrative for various reasons. And you, you've, you've delved into the different political, the different military reasons behind why those narratives are so important to the West. And in particular, I think you're, you focus mostly on the United States, but I think you could easily uh, tie that into other aspects of, of Europe but, and, and the West as a whole. And even your discussion of the West as a narrative, as well as its, its connection to the problematic even labeling of West versus, and you've really adequately um, described that aspect of the problematic aspect of calling it the Middle East and the colonial intentions behind the Middle East uh, connotation and your discussion of, of the, uh, uh, of the Swana understanding uh, Southwest Asian, North Africa understanding lens is an important way of kind of talking about the issue. So first, thank you for joining us and sharing us your your research and your project. Um, but I, I really want to ask you, why why are you so interested in this topic to begin with? What, what was the um, motivation behind talking about this issue? Thank you for having me. I I'm really interested in both post-colonial literature uh, and religious studies. And I found that this was like a really good way to mesh the two. I've taken quite a few classes on post-colonial literature. I've done a lot of like Edward Said. Uh, and I was always really interested in the gender aspect of it, which you kind of get in like bits and pieces, um, but not necessarily as a whole picture. And I read Layla Ahmed's Discourse of the Veil in um, a post-colonial literature class. And she basically talks about the issue that I talk about in the podcast. And it really felt like something that was so underspoken about. I don't think that anyone was really teaching it as, as much of a centerpiece as I thought that it was. Um, and I really loved the relation to religion because there's just so much overlap there. And I felt that this was kind of a good opportunity just to go in whatever direction I wanted. This was something that I had 
done a little less of. I've also just in my religious studies classes tended to focus towards um, Judaism and Christianity in my final projects and essays, which I obviously also love studying, but I figured this was kind of a way to push me out of that just a little bit. Thank you for 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 going in that direction too, because it is a topic that is so often under discussed. And you even mentioned in in the beginning part of your uh, your podcast episode, uh, just the the way in which the subtle racist underpinnings that you find in social media, even in Disney on a regular basis. And I, I always am referencing Disney in a lot of my lectures, as you know, Uh, I do a lot of movie references, Disney references. And I also point out some of the problematic aspects of it, but you showed me something that I didn't even know at the beginning of, um, Aladdin when they talk about that, um, controversial, uh, song, about mm-hmm. you know what it what Aladdin the the time and frame of this made up stereotypical land and the place where people will chop off your ear and do all these barbaric <laughs> things is in a children's song mm-hmm. that's geared towards the Western audience and this creates a depiction of what this land is about, about barbarity and barbarity and, and how you have all these things. And also the, the aspect of how you're talking about that gender relations within that, where you have Jasmine who's just confined and completely lacking agency unless until Aladdin comes along and this mm-hmm. man is able to free her. I want, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that. Have you found other aspects of this aspect of the, that type of narrative in our uh, public discourses of, of mass media and various forms of that? And how did you come across even finding this Aladdin clip as well? The Aladdin clip I found, I believe that the same professor that I took the post-colonial class for used that, but I'm not entirely sure. It might have been from some YouTube video analysis or something that I came across, because I don't remember that line from childhood. Um, And I also don't know if that was still the line by the time that I was watching it, because Aladdin came out in the 90s and they changed that for the DVD release. Um, So they didn't change it very much, but by the time that I was watching it in the 2000s, it had already, I think, um, kind of slipped under the radar. But I think it's just, it's relevant in every part of media. There's just so many little pieces of Orientalism that you get. I remember loving the Siamese twin cats from, I think it's the Aristocats. Um, no, or it's Lady and the Tramp. Lady and the, Lady Tramp. And the Tramp, yeah. right? When I was a kid. And looking back at that, I'm like, that's hugely problematic that that was like a character um, or two characters. And I think one that I really remember that I think specifically relates to this um, like post-colonial Islamic feminism discussion is the movie God's Not Dead. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. It's a Christian movie, um, but, and it's it's produced by a Christian production company. But I remember just, it was on Netflix when I was like in middle school and I just saw it proposed as like a film about some guy and his philosophy professor. And as a kid interested in philosophy, I watched it. And there is a, the main plot of that movie is a guy who, his professor, it's very unrealistic looking back at it. His professor basically says that, um, God's dead and like their final is literally that they just have to admit that God's dead and if they don't do that then they're going to fail the class or whatever just like a complete like 
bastardization of like Nietzsche's words, but the whole thing is like a faith journey for all these various people in that class are connected to the main character. And one of them is a, um, a college student and from a Muslim family. And she's having to like hide that she's Christian. Um, and she's like listening to the Bible on her iPod, like secretly. And her dad, like at one point, I think like either yells at her or beats her when he finds out. Um, and she's like forced to wear the hijab out and like she puts it on in the car with him. And I think she at some point like takes it off when she's out. Um, and that I remember, like that was one of my first, because there's so little representation of hijabi women in media. As a middle schooler, that was like one of my first um, abilities to be able to see a hijabi woman in a movie. And it was basically about the fact that she didn't want to be a hijabi woman and that it was forced on her. Um, and then I remember other little things that weren't necessarily uh, overtly Muslim, but in the movie Lemonade Mouth, which was like a decom when I was a kid. Uh, it was a really good movie. I loved it. But there's one of the characters, Mo, and she comes from, I don't know what the, her ethnicity is specified, but she's Asian. Um, and her she does the whole thing where she puts on all these clothes to leave the house. And then as soon as she gets to school, she like takes them off because her dad is like kind of oppressing her in that way. I feel like there's a little bit of like an implied Muslim tone to it. But yeah, I think it's just, it's everywhere as we're growing up. And unless you're really explicitly aware of it, it just kind of floods into the back of your mind and you forget about it, but the bias stays. Yeah, I, I think I've seen that also in a lot of media representations of of the West as, as the West in conflict with uh, the Swana region as well. And, and that paints that picture so often of why and justifies the different colonial aspects of it and the different occupational aspects of, of the Western understanding and um, their actual presence in these areas and, and trying to justify to why they're there is saying, well, it's, it, we're here to liberate these people, particularly the women. Mm-hmm. And that has become pretty much the, the token uh, phrase or the token understanding, the framework that is depicted to justify why this is so important. And I, and I remember this quite particularly right after um, the um, the U.S. Uh, pulled from Afghanistan just recently in, in, in the past mm-hmm. year. And yes. all of a sudden you started hearing more and more stories. And I'm not denying that these are, are actually happened, but it's, it was, I thought it was fascinating that this was the, 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 the going headline for so many Western media's uh, uh, portrayal of what's going on in Afghanistan is that now Al Qaeda is coming in and they're oppressing the women all over again. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could like, kind of, I, I don't know if you have any kind of impression about like what that is, but maybe just talking about that aspect of the, um, the need for that narrative to be reinforced in order to justify some of these actions from the Western um, colonial powers. I wonder if you could talk about a little bit about that in, in greater detail. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it, it doesn't seem like we care about the women in Afghanistan at any other time. I think that's the biggest thing that stands out to me. There's no headlines about them um, unless there's a reason that the U.S. wants to intervene in Afghanistan. And so it it feels ingenuine, uh, not necessarily that these women aren't oppressed, um, but that we don't really care about their oppression unless it benefits our imperialist pursuits. Yeah. And so I think that that's like one of the biggest 
sentiments that I'm left with after doing the research is that it's not necessarily that there is no oppression in this area of the world, just the same way as that women are oppressed here. Um, but really that we only care about making that a talking point when there's some reason for the US to become involved in foreign politics, whether that be having military presence or you know, trying to create some narrative as to you know, why we wanna do X, Y, and Z with our economy. Um, and so I think that it definitely shows in the way that we speak about these issues. I, the clip that I used in my podcast where um, we were talking about a terrorist attack in, in France and the conversation somehow turned into, oh, in these countries where they oppress women and gay people, um, because it really positions people in Swana as victims for the US to come save. Because if we say, oh, the politicians in these areas or the extremist groups in these areas are attacking the women in these areas. It's an attack on itself almost. We need to come in and save them. Um, and there's very little depiction of any sort of feminist groups in Swana that are obviously doing their own work in their own communities, which I think is clearly way more important than coming in and imposing what we think is best. Um, I think it's just a very clear, when you begin to look at the rhetoric surrounding it all, it's very clear that our intention has never been to liberate women in other countries or to liberate women from maybe parts of quote unquote Islamic culture that can be oppressive. Uh, but it's instead to, to position us as separate from gender oppression that in the West, we do not do that or we don't do it like that at least and simultaneously allow us to intervene and say that we're doing it for a good cause. We're doing it for a progressive cause. We're doing it for the women and the gay people um, and not we're doing it for our own economy or we're doing it to keep um, our status as a world power. That's a fascinating um, input that you just gave. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering how, you know, particularly in the current um, uh, uh, situation in the um, European conflict with Russia, um, how religious identity is being played out. Uh, all of a sudden, the way Putin is being described by the West um, as, as a narrative uh, is, is, is fascinating. And um, what, you, what you just explained um, does have resonance with that type of, uh, if you don't fit in within the descriptions that we have, then you will become an enemy. Therefore, we will, we will attack you. Um, so to, to what extent, no, um, um, because I'm now asking as from a, from a, um, student of religion in a sense that how often these big tropes that is very often used um, assumes new meaning and new purpose. Um, and, and how, you know, I've been uh, looking at um, various other um, examples. Um, could, you, could you reflect on how the, these the, the, the framework that you just explained, how they very quickly become quite international. Yeah, uh, I think that in every way we have used Orientalist concepts and are comfortable applying them 
um, to, it's, it's, it's a concept of hegemony, I think, that it expands and it constricts, and it's the way whiteness does that, that uh, anything can be other if we describe mm. it the right way. And that kind of works in whatever direction we want it to work in. Uh, and if we want that, these things that we've been applying to a very specific region of the world in Asia and Africa, but if we are trying to create the same narrative that we've created about them with some European power like Putin, it's very easy because we've already established all of these characteristics as negative, um, as barbaric. Uh, and mm. it's so it's so simple to do it very subtly by just using all these same kind of trigger words that we've used uh, in the past and apply them to a new person. I also think the situation um, in Russia and Ukraine is really interesting now as well, because I feel like we're doing this. I feel like it, it definitely reflects on how differently we view white nations or predominantly white nations um, that are impacted by conflicts of war versus like like the way we discuss swana is just very flippant i think and at this point it doesn't seem like many people care at all about victims of war and violence there especially not if we are the perpetrators the mm. us whereas everyone i know has like a ukraine flag in their instagram bio or like they like in the city that i'm in right now they have a bunch of people have these little like ukraine um like lawn signs and I'm like who is that helping it really just does feel like people do not care about war unless it's like oh my god but that victim of war is white like me so like how could this happen to them I thought that this was only a thing that happened in barbaric countries like those Islamic countries uh, and I think that it's really interesting how our empathy for a European nation actually is beginning to reflect how little we care about nations that are predominantly filled with people of color Mm -hmm. I, I think you, if you if you if you if you um, continue within in that same um, thought process, you could look at um, funding <laughs> funding um, from the you know what the U.S. or others commit to even the fundraising practices of ordinary Americans around um around the ukraine russia um conflict i know within within whatsapp groups that i'm involved in what one of the things that came up in the conflict was just even the treatment of african immigrants in ukraine mm. um, during the conflict and um how while some coverage there was some coverage of that <laughs> there wasn't much coverage um, you'd say in the on the major um, media news media, and so it's it's interesting for people of color to in some ways be sympathetic about that conflict, and then hear from other people of color about how what their experience has been and how that whole thing reframes um, how people see that conflict as well. And so um, I, I think you're right. <laughs> As, as somebody from the Caribbean <laughs> um, who is very familiar with um, America's reach within the Caribbean basin, um, I, I do know that America, um, even in the even in their trade agreements, act in the interests of America, not so much the other countries that they're doing agreements with. And so, yes, yes, I, I, I you're, you're spot on. 
um, in, in that assessment. The, the self-interest mm -hmm. uh, dominates every aspect of uh, life, whether it is religious or social or political. But even it, it, even the the racial aspect of it of this whole conflict in, in, in that interesting connection we're making with the Ukraine conflict as well is the the role of even even immigration and how we do with refugees. Mm -hmm. um, the issue of refugee, at least this could be a whole other topic, a whole other podcast, I'm sure. But so I just want, I just want, we could, we could table it for another time. But just this aspect of how you're seeing immigration as after, you know, the, the impact of Syria and Afghanistan, um, refugees that were coming to Europe, all of a sudden it was a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And now, and, and, and we we just put them on a plane and sent to, to Rwanda. Rwanda. Yeah, no, that that's that was the and, yeah yeah that, now and, and the UK is paying for for Rwanda to, to take in all these all these refugees now. Yeah, yeah, and and that's that's costing 120 million uh, pounds uh, of uh, UK taxpayers' yep. money. The, the the problem is, it'll be much cheaper to keep them here yeah. than actually fly them out. And as you very rightly said, I think what was very interesting is that on, on you know, what was uh, the, the flight that did not take off to Rwanda, most of the uh, people who were put on that plane were all Muslims, yeah. mostly from Afghanistan, from Iraq, and from Syria. Yeah. Just imagine sending these Muslim men, uh, young men, who are kind of escaped their home countries to a, a very violent, still conflict-prone African nation? Uh, just, just baffles. Like, and and the person who's responsible for that is an is herself an immigrant, yeah. and that's that's the problem because she has, as Amy has said, you know, I think she has bought into that framework that this is not our problem someone else will we will outsource our moral mm -hmm. responsibility and yet the con the concept of of doing that with ukrainian refugees would be preposterous yes exactly. yes it would <laughs> yes it would yeah so that's why and you know uh, uh, on the same way uh, there's there's a free pass for those who are fleeing hong kong you know, there's the, in UK, again, speaking from a UK context, um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's a government policy to welcome Hong Kongers because they are seen to be uh, beneficial to the uh, UK economy rather than a burden because all these young people are techno savvy and they are economically far more productive than the refugees who are fleeing persecuted areas. Um, and it's it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, uh, this, you know, a lot of Ukrainians are uh, given homes in United Kingdom. Uh, it's it's amazing. And, and what is quite uh, uh, troubling is that um, the, the number of people who have expressed uh, interest to house Ukrainians and the percentage, more than 44% of UK population that supports the Rwanda plan. Mm. There's a very interesting uh, uh, mapping on going there that it's the same group of people who want to welcome Ukrainians, but want to send 
the uh, refugees too. Um, so I, I certainly think there is that religion plays a very significant role. And mm -hmm. as Amy has said, that the, the internalization of the Orientalist perspective also plays a very critical role. It reminds me. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it reminds me too, speaking of religion and refugees, of the creation of Israel and how like that land was decided upon and it was really mm. supported by the UK mm. and by the US because it was like, well, we don't want the Jews here. Like, mm -hmm. so if we give them, if we support a homeland, even if it displaces Palestinian people, it's not going to be in our land. And that is what matters. I think that it's mm. like the exact same concept just tends to repeat itself as long as it's not white Christian people, it's send them somewhere else as long as it's not here. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I was going to say is it speaks even more to the, the way in which English and British or English and whiteness mm -hmm. are, are um, those identities um, converge, <laughs> not even converge, are constructed. Um, in many ways. And so it's, it's, it's different if you are white and Christian, then this can be a place for you. But if you are other in whole, whatever permutation the other takes, um, unless you are a certain other that we want, <laughs> then place can be made for you. But if you're other that's outside of those boundaries, we need to find you, you need to go somewhere else because mm -hmm. this is not the place for you. Well, you've you've definitely sparked uh, some great conversation, Amaya. So th thank you so much for for joining uh, joining us on this podcast. Thank you for sharing your research; it was fantastic. And I'm looking forward to future research from you as well. I know we've kind of talked about the potential for that, but I think you have a lot of uh, potential. Um, so as an undergraduate so at Chapman University, yeah, go Chapman. Um, I am, I am, I'm privileged come, to come to UK. Ah, you should. Yeah. <laughs> we're all, we're all UK grads as well, but um but yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for joining us and uh, good luck. And I look forward to seeing you next fall. Thank you so much. I will see you then. All right. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, if you enjoy this podcast or think that somebody else might enjoy it, please share it. Help spread the, the word about Religion Matters so that we can reach a much wider audience. We think this information is vital to our understanding of the world and how religion interacts with it. So again, please help support our podcast by sharing it in any way you find appropriate. And if you'd like to reach out to us, uh, have any comments or suggestions or any sort of feedback at all, please contact us at religionmatters2 at gmail.com. That's religionmatters the number two at gmail.com. Thank you. Your hosts for this podcast are Janice McLean Farrell, the Dick Romain Assistant Professor of Metro Urban Ministry and Assistant Dean of Doctoral Studies at New Brunswick Theological Seminary. Anderson Jeremiah is the Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religion at Lancaster University. And me, I am Kirk Sandvig of Chapman University and San Diego State University. 
This podcast has been brought to you with support from Chapman University, San Diego State University, University of Lancaster, and New Brunswick Theological Seminary. Thank you for your continued support.